primary text for the sermon will be verse 23, which if you don't have your Bible with us, with you, is uh, written on the banner behind me, on this banner that my mom made some years ago. The verse was actually our year verse at Grace Church in, uh, in 2005, and if there's anything like a life verse for me, verse 23 is it. But I'd like to start reading uh, with you at verse 18. Would you stand with me if you're able? If you're able, if not, stay seated. But if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? When I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you agree with me, say, thanks be to God in response. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach To save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks. Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Ray. God bless you, brother. This is uh, my last sermon with you, as Charlie said, as pastor of Grace Church. Uh, And I could spend the next hour reminiscing uh, about our times together over the last uh, 16 plus years. Um, but it's better to hear God speak. I do, I do however, have, uh, I think some thank yous are in order. Uh, honestly, I could, I could look at each one of you, almost each one of you, and say something about how God has used you to contribute to my life, our family's life, and the life of this church, and say thank you. Christ will one day do that. Um, but there are, some, there are some particular thank yous uh, that are in order. First of all, just sort of collectively, thank you, Grace Church. I came to, we came to Grace Church in 1998, 21 years ago. Uh, We just joined the church. Uh, We were members. Uh, I was um, a pastor, uh, had been a pastor who had grown a little unsure of my calling. I'd I'd pastored for four years in California and then quit, and then we moved back here to Roanoke, which is uh, my home. Uh, I took a job teaching at Faith Christian School, and we joined Grace Church, and I was struggling with you know, as one, as one preacher said, was, was I sent or did I just went? Uh, 
Did God call me or, or not? And what I really desired was the affirmation of the congregation of, of, of a people of God who would know me to affirm that calling in me. My own assessment is just too uncertain uh, for my own confidence. And after being here for about one or two years, uh, I was called as an elder here, which was very encouraging. Uh, three years after being here in 2001, I was then called as an assistant pastor, and then in 2003 as a senior pastor, and that, uh, that encouraged me, gave me some confidence that it was, it was God who was sending here and not just my own desires. So thank you. Thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for encouraging me. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for, um, for helping me grow as a, as a preacher. Thank you for walking with me through some hard books like Daniel and Revelation and Hebrews. Uh, thank you for walking with me through long books, but glorious books like Romans and John and others. Thank you for spoiling us financially. Your, your generosity and the generosity of the elders really has been uh, above and beyond and, and very helpful and encouraging to us. Thank you for helping us raise our four children and for helping them on to Jesus. Uh, we are much in your debt. I want to say a special thank you to the elders for, for partnering, for fellowshipping, um, for the ministry, uh, your ministry of the word in, in good times and in hard times. And there have been some of both, uh, but the Lord, but it's been together uh, through the good times and the hard times. You've, you've never lorded it over the flock your position as elders, but you've used your role to shepherd the flock as those who must give an account, and you've always taken that seriously. None of us are adequate. From my perspective, you've done well. Thank you. Thank you for your fellowship in the work of the ministry. Deacons, thank you. Your ministries of mercy behind the scenes have been under the Lord and have not been in vain. God bless you. Charlie, brother, thank you for being my friend. Thank you for the confidence and the trust that uh, y'all, uh, brothers and sisters for all, from All Nations Church, were uh, willing to come and unite with us and to be a part of this work together, worship our God together. God bless you and Gretchen. Glad you're here, Gretchen, and Hopefully feeling some better. Love you. Love your children. God bless you. Uh, God has put you here for such a time as this. Thank you, John Carroll, for being willing to partner with him in the interim period here. Pat, Susan, Larry have been the supreme office staff. They have served this church well. They have been so good to me and so good to work with. I thank you. Thank God for you, Susan and Pat and uh, Larry. Um, Stephen, I love you, brother. Thank you for leading us in worship. And, and Ray, before you, thank you, musicians and singers. Uh, I love you. 
you've helped me to worship. You've helped us all to worship. Randy and I were talking this morning, Randy and Julie, God bless you. Randy came into my office shortly after I started as senior pastor and uh, pledged his love and support and expressed the mercy that he felt God had shown to Grace Church and said, would you pray with me? And we met together and, and a group of pastors praying together continues to this day because of that. I want to say thank you to our children. Danielle and Catherine and Noah and Levi, you didn't choose your church as most children don't. You didn't choose your pastor. You didn't choose your parents as no children child does. Uh, God did, and we are so grateful that he did. You are his blessing to us. You know, PKs as you are sometimes want to be called, uh, are sometimes looked at different, differently and sometimes feel like you have to live down a reputation uh, with friends, but you have, by God's grace, let wisdom be your guide. And you have sought to follow him. We love you. Your mom and I love you more than we can say. Uh, thank you for being here with us today. I want to say thank you next uh, to my precious wife, Nancy. Uh, not to downplay the challenges of any wife, you all have unique challenges. Uh, but I want to acknowledge some of, the, some of the challenges that pastors' wives can sometimes experience. A pastor's wife gets to bear uh, with her husband, not only as her husband, but also her pastor, and who can bear that? A pastor's wife doesn't get to find a new church when she doesn't like what the pastor says. A pastor's wife has to fight not to take it personally when somebody complains about the preaching and leaves the church unhappily. A pastor's wife needs a lot of grace and wisdom not to negatively impact her husband's work. I mean, how many wives feel like her husband's performance review is dependent on her and her children? Some, some of you do. But she really does live in a glass house. A pastor's wife often doesn't know who to trust. Who does she go to if she has a problem with her husband or her children? Uh, where is safe? And how does she deal with her husband's challenges at work when his work is also her church and her friends and her children's lives? And God has provided some people that Nancy has been able to trust through the years, and I thank her. Thank God for that. And Nancy, you have borne all of these. This is going to be hard for her because she's interpreting to herself, about herself. You have, you, have, you have served well behind the scenes in nurseries and grace kids and Wednesday night dinners and a hundred Bible, uh, Bible studies and a hundred other ways, mainly behind the scenes, except for times like this morning. And you have, you, have, you have done so and faced these challenges willingly and faithfully for 22 years here, between here and in California. You have persevered through these and other challenges that are too complex to explain, 
you have stuck with me, you have loved me, and you have served me and our children very well. Nancy, God bless you. Thank you. I have a small token I'd like to give to you. Let me take it out. This is a, uh, a little vase that I got to make and paint a glazed biscuit. And uh, with some love signs, uh, I love you signs on it, and thank you, Nancy. Praise be to God. And lastly, and there's lots of others I know. If there are other things that I should say and ought to say, and maybe things that uh, if I've said anything amiss or haven't said anything, just like always, please cover it in love. But I want to say lastly a thank you to our Lord. Uh, when I went into ministry in 1994. I did so because I loved the Bible and I wanted to teach it. And somewhere along the way, as I studied the Bible, God began to open my eyes more clearly to the centrality of grace and the centrality of Christ in all the scriptures. And I fell in love with Jesus. And I think that's when God actually called me. I was already preaching. But I think I finally understood what the message was supposed to be. And I wasn't called just to teach the Bible in a general way, but to preach Christ and His grace. Uh, as, as the judge Ehud said to the Moabite king, I have a message from God for you, and I knew what that message was. It is the greatest privilege and honor to preach Christ. And I'm not sure why he's changing my course at the moment, but I'm confident that he is, and it's okay, and it's good, because he's good, and he has a purpose in all of it, and I embrace it with all my heart. So here's what I want to leave you with this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. This is not the end of the sermon. This is the beginning, but it's what I want to leave with you, 1 Corinthians 1, 23, preach Christ crucified in the church, to yourselves, to this world. There's two parts to this sentence that I want to emphasize. Pardon me. The first part in verse 23 is keep preaching. Keep preaching. To preach means to herald or to proclaim it's not only a foolish message that we'll talk about in a few minutes, but it's a foolish message. It's a foolish method. And the tendency and the pressure is to diminish it and to forsake it. To make it something less in the worship of God and in the ministry of God and in the proclamation in the in the work of God. But it's a but it is a foolish method. You remember, uh, you remember Joshua at the Battle of Jericho. It's sort of, it's sort of like that when the Lord comes to Joshua and says, "Now, Joshua, I want you and I want the people of Israel to take Jericho." 
take it first, go conquer Jericho. Great, Lord, uh, we'll, we'll bring out the, the ladders and climb the parapet walls. We'll bring out our archers. We'll take our spears. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll throw, you know, set up our catapults and throw flaming rocks and we'll surround the city and we'll besiege it and we'll cut off the food supply and uh, we'll, we'll starve them out. We will defeat them. Lord, should we, should we snap our fingers with the infinity stones and, uh, and make them all collapse? Uh, you know where I was yesterday. But what should we do, Lord? Uh, well, not, not exactly, Joshua. Um, what, I, what I want you to do is gather up all the, all the men of war, put them, in a single, put them in a procession, put the ark in front, put seven priests uh, after the ark, and, uh, and then the rest of the men. All right, so then we, we charge the battlements, right, Lord? Well, uh, not exactly. What, what, I want, what I want you to do is to have, um, to have all these men with the ark and the priest in front. I want you to march around the city once a day for six days. Uh, psychological warfare. I get it. You're going to freak them out, right, Lord? Not, not exactly. On the, on the seventh day, I want, I want you to march around it seven times, and then I want the priests to blow their horns really loud, and I want everybody to shout, and then the walls are going to fall down, and you're going to take the city. Okay? Like, seriously? I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine uh, our president, uh, the commander-in-chief, giving orders like that to the, to the army? You know, here's what we're going we're gonna to do, um, amphibious landing, uh, we're going to dress up in sheets. We're going to walk. We're going to walk up to the enemy stronghold. We're going to put the Marine Corps uh, band in front, and then the chaplains behind them. And then you're going to walk around, uh, you know, this this city, um, you know, for seven days. And you're going to shout, you know. I mean, uh, Robert Mueller would have another uh, two-year investigation to uh, to go through, and the Russians will get blamed in the end. Uh, no doubt. <laughs> I mean, su- such a plan of a of attack, you know. Joshua, this is foolishness. It was foolishness then. It's foolishness now. I mean, if if God, if we want, if if we're to go in like that, God, you would have to come down and give the victory yourself. Yes. And that's what he does. And that's what he's done. Preaching is as foolish a method as blowing a trumpet and shouting to make walls fall down. It's more foolish. And that's exactly what he does. We we live in a visual culture. And preaching is a verbal medium. You come in with Hours and hours of screen time every week, and you're expected to sit here and listen to communication that's a little bit dense sometimes. And God, how is that going to work? Except that God comes down, and God saves. And I think I think preaching is often diminished because it's not understood for what it is. We mainly, we tend to, I think even here, we tend to think of preaching mainly as an educational lecture, uh, teaching us how to think and giving us tips for living. You know, give me something I can write down and go home with. 
and try to live out. And it's not less than that, but it is significantly more than that. It's been reported that we remember 100% of what we memorize and meditate on, that we remember 50% of what we study, we remember 25% of what we read, and we remember a whole whopping 10% of what we hear. And so doesn't it make sense that if we retain only 10% of what we hear, then hadn't we better find something more effective than preaching? Let me ask you this. Would it have mattered to Lazarus, whom I preached about last week, would it have mattered to Lazarus in any practical sense when the Lord called him from the grave, whether he remembered 10% or 100% of the Lord's word? Would it have mattered? It would not have made. Wouldn't the issue be that the Lord called him to life and he was alive? That's exactly what preaching is. It's the Lord Jesus calling his friends to life. Those he's given life, he gives more life. To those who are yet dead in their trespasses and sins, he raises from the dead. His word has power. Preaching is educational, but it's educational in the same way that Lazarus come forth is educational. There are other reasons why, why preaching is... Uh, a foolish method, but in contrast to a growing de-emphasis de de on preaching in our culture and in the churches, my plea to you, and thankfully, Charlie believes this also, as do our elders, what I'm saying, so I know you'll be, you'll be okay, at least for now. My plea to you, though, is to remember that preaching is the primary method that God has ordained to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We remember that Jesus is himself called the word of God and he is brought to hearers through words. When Jesus called his 12 disciples, he did so in order, quote, that he might send them out to preach. In Romans 10, 14, Paul says, you know this verse, how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard and how shall they hear without a preacher? In 2 Timothy 4, Paul charges Timothy to preach the word. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in the 20th century writes this, Is it not clear that the decadent periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching has declined? What is it, he says, that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or of a re revival? It is renewed preaching. Keep preaching the word. God has given us a foolish method foolish to the world, but it is the wisdom of God. Secondly, second part of this verse is this. Keep preaching Christ crucified. A, a right method with the wrong message is, is worse than useless. It's dangerous. We preach Christ crucified. A clearer reading would really be we preach a crucified Christ. A crucified Christ. And there is a shade of an important shade of difference there. It is true and right to simply say we preach Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for 
anointed one, one anointed by God, one sent by God to be the Savior of sinners. Christ is the anointed, Jesus is the anointed one. He is the theme of all of our preaching. Preaching about abortion, preaching about prayer, preaching about church government, preaching about social justice, preaching about morality, preaching about doctrines like election or predestination or so forth are absolutely essential and central to the gospel. I'm not trying now I'm not trying to drive a wedge between preaching Christ and preaching doctrine. What I'm trying to say is don't drive a wedge between preaching Christ and preaching doctrine. If we preach about abortion, it must be in the context of the son who was aborted himself to save babies and abortionists and mothers who have abortions and even men who pressure them into it. If we preach about prayer, it must be in the context of Christ in whose name we pray. If we preach about church government, it must be in the context of him who is the head of the church. If we preach about social justice, it must be in the context of him who bore our just deserts and who will in the end judge justly. If we preach about morality, we must preach it in the context of him who is righteous for us and who makes us righteous both in our position and in our practice. If we preach about election, it must be in the context of the fact that we are chosen in Christ who is the choice one of God. We are preachers of Christ. But Paul is not simply saying here Christ is the topic of our preaching, though he clearly is. Nor is the emphasis that we preach that, uh, that we preach that Christ was crucified for sinners, though he clearly was, and we preach that. But in this verse, that's not exactly the emphasis. In this verse, the emphasis is not so much on what was done to Christ, that he was crucified, but rather on what kind of Christ we preach. That is, we preach a, a crucified kind of Christ. It's not, in other words, the event of crucifixion that's emphasized, but it's the lowliness and the humiliation of the Christ that we preach that's emphasized. This kind of Christ, a Christ that is crucified, is absolutely folly to fallen humans. Who wants that kind of Christ? We are, we are basically proud, and it does not easily fit to claim as our Messiah that we have this great deliverer and king who is a man who is despised, rejected, and executed as a, as a criminal. What's God's, what's God's battle plan? Not fight hard, but die well. His word to his disciples is put away the sword. Not kill your enemy, but forgive your enemy. He'll, he'll, he'll bring out the sword himself one day, but this is not that day. And that offends our sense of justice. We want a Christ who lets us hold on to our swords, one who calls us to, to thrust to thrust others through rather than one who calls us to be thrust through. We want a Christ who says, defend your rights, not one who says, lay them down for my sake. 
We're, we're, we're too much like Naaman the leper. You remember Naaman the leper in the Old Testament. He was the commander of the Syrian army. And when he came to, to Elisha to be healed of his leprosy, it greatly offended him that, that Elisha didn't, didn't come out and, and uh, give some elaborate performance over and wave his hands over him and give some big ceremony and, and come out and do this himself and, uh, and make a really big deal out of it. He's the commander of the Syrian army. He deserves some sort of special treatment, doesn't he? But rather, Elisha doesn't even come out, sends his servant, says, go, go, go wash in the, in the muddy little river called Jordan. He's like, there are rivers back where I come from that are mightier than this. What is, what is this? What Naaman learned was that salvation demands a demeaning humility. But we want a gospel that doesn't make us look stupid in school or on TV. Sacrificial death and resurrection, forgiveness, mercy. What is, what is this? Where's, where's the science behind that? We naturally want to look good, be accepted, be acknowledged as bright, as wise, as, as the sophisticated people that we so obviously are. So a crucified Christ is not as easy to preach as, as we might think. And there, there are lots of reasons for that. Let me, let me mention just a couple briefly. Um, re, there are lots of reasons why I think that we don't really believe it's as easy as we might say that it is. And the first reason I believe that is because we, we say we may not mind a crucified Christ. We clean up the cross quite a bit, make it look good, but we sure, we sure don't want a crucified preacher of Christ. I'm, I'm putting myself in your place now. I'm not, I'm not drawing attention to myself here. But we want preachers that we can be proud of, don't we? We want somebody that we can boast about to the world. We're, we're like Israel with their, you know, uh, give us a king who's tall, dark, and handsome like the nations. Somebody that the nations will respect. Somebody that we can take pride in. Come hear our preacher. We say, he's, he's so smart. He can answer all your questions. You know, or, he's such an effective speaker. He's so funny. You won't get bored listening to him. He's so, he's so cool and friendly. You re, you'll really like him. And, and uh, if you like him, we hope you'll like Jesus too. Uh, well, of course, the preacher should be intelligent and, and winsome for Christ's sake. But it's not the power of his rhetoric or personality that God wants to use to save. I, I, we saw a, a passion play a, uh, a few years ago. And, uh, you know, it's the, it's the scene where uh, the, Jesus is carrying his cross down the, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering to, to Calvary. And, and uh, in this particular passion play, you know, he's, 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 all, almost, he's got some clothes on, but he's all, he doesn't have a shirt on, you know, he's bloody and he's got a crown of thorns and all. And this Jesus that was playing, this guy that was playing Jesus was a little chubby. And I thought... Ooh, <laughs> I really did not picture Jesus that way. Uh, you know, we, we want to buff Jesus, don't we? We want a Jesus that sort, sort of looks like the Hulk. Uh, 
if I were putting on a play for the community, that, that's what I would want. I want, I want a Jesus that, that people look at and go, yeah, I'm following that guy. He's tough. He's, he can do this. And if our Christ is a crucified Christ, then we want his representative We say we want to crucify Christ, but we want his representatives not to look that way. But how can, we, how can an exalted preacher preach a crucified Christ? And that's Paul's point in chapter 2, verses 3, uh, chapter two, verses three and 4. He says this, of 1 Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. By the way, that's so freeing. You know, m- m- many of you are scared to death to talk to people about Jesus because you're not, you don't know enough. You're not going to be able to answer all the questions. You feel like you don't look good enough. You don't speak good enough. You're, not, you're afraid because God can't do anything through you. And so you just keep quiet. You see, God, God wants you to realize that the power of salvation does not belong to you. It belongs to him. All you need to speak is the truth. You need to know the truth. There is that. Well, there's another reason. Um, by the way, by the way, just keep this in mind as you're as you're evaluating and thinking about who's going to be your next pastor. Be careful not to start thinking in worldly categories, personality issues, and things that would entice the world. Use, use biblical categories. Think, think truth. There's another reason why I think, close to the last thing, that, I'm, that we, I, I think we might not be as ease about preaching a crucified Christ in the church today as we might say, and it's because preaching a crucified Christ means that we have to talk about our sin which is the reason for his crucifixion. To preach a crucified Christ means we have to say, you know, you're really not all that. Jesus didn't come for you because you're so cute or so special or so worthy. While, While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Jesus does love you. Jesus does love us. We are precious to him, but not because of something in us, but because of something in him. He doesn't love us because we, we complete him in some way. He loves us because he is love. Our love for each other is most often a response to the loveliness in the other, but God's love for us is an overflow of the love that's in himself. Uh, we have to say in preaching a crucified Christ that you really are messed up. Uh, and it's your fault. We have to say, you might have been born that way, but it's still not okay. We have to say, you might really be addicted, and you're still responsible. We we have to say, you might be broken and have been mistreated, and that part's not your fault, but you still need a Savior for your own sin. And even now, we do say that. And I want to say that to you. You have fallen short of the glory of God. You have sinned. 
The wages of your sin is death. And by death, I mean eternal separation from the God who made you, from the God who gives you breath, from the God who causes the sun to to shine on you and the rain to fall to provide food for you, and the God that, that you shake your fist at every day of your ungodly life. The wages of your sin is death, and it means separation from that God forever and ever. But we also get to say this, that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And only through Jesus Christ our Lord who gave himself on the cross in order to take the place of all who would be his. And we get to say, because we have a crucified Christ If you will rely on him, if you will come to him, if you will call upon him, if you will entrust your life to this one who was crucified for you, he will give you his righteousness and himself forever and ever. He didn't die because he saw good in us. He died because he didn't, but he loved us. There is a direct relationship between preaching sin and preaching the crucified Christ. And how foolish is that? I mean, who wins friends and influences people by telling them how good he is and how bad they are? Who does that? We have a foolish message, foolish in the eyes of the world. Our our message is not to go wash in the mighty rivers of the Abana and the far part of Damascus. Our message is to go wash in the bloody stream of of Jordan. Why? Because, as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians, it's so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that we can sing with full sincerity through all eternity, to God be the glory, great things he hath done. Are you willing to wash? Are you willing to wash in the Jordan this morning? you've never come to Christ, are you willing this morning to wash in the Jordan? If you have, are you willing willing to have your feet washed in that bloody river? And by that I mean to confess your sin and need of a Savior and to side with a crucified Christ. Are Are you willing to go out this week into the workplace, into the classroom, or or to the dinner table, or to a or to the congregation? And take a humiliating stand with the crucified Christ? Are you willing to take up your cross and follow after him? Can you you really follow and proclaim a crucified Christ? Which requires humility, which requires sacrifice. Jesus said, if not, then you can't be his disciple. He, He doesn't require your perfection. What he requires is your trust. That you would side with this kind of Christ. But if you're willing to boast in him who was crucified for you, a sinner, and raised again, then he'll boast of you to his father. And that's, that's, what all, that's all that matters in the end, isn't it? I, 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 hope, I hope that you'll do lots of things differently as a church than we've done in the last 16 years together. I mean, this, this, the way we do a lot of things... And some of the personality of this church is, is, is because that's the way I wanted it done. We, we've plowed a long time in the same furrow, and uh, for better and for worse. 
And, and some, of you, some of you are saying, we really need to get out of that furrow, and you're right. But listen, change is hard. Even if you think it's for good, it's hard. And there will be resistance. And I want to say to you, be willing to do things differently. Be willing to consider other options. A lot of the, thi- a lot of the things we do and a lot of the ways we do it are not sacred. They're not holy cows. You're not going to die if you don't do it that way. A lot of churches do it differently, and it's good. Do, do things differently, but don't do this differently. Preach better than I do, but don't preach something different. Preach Christ crucified. A crucified Christ. It won't look like glory. It won't look like success yet. But this is the age of the crucified Savior. But there is resurrection. And it will come for all those who live now under the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, grant us grace to live under the cross. To trust the one who bore the cross for us. Grant that that this church never, ever, Preach anything other than a crucified kind of Christ until that day when the glorified, resurrected Christ comes and calls us up. We plead this with you. We cannot hold ourselves to this track. You must hold us firm. And you are able. Pray that you will. In the name of Jesus, for his glory, amen.